Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. My guest today, Ambassador Thomas Pickering, is a legendary retired U.S. Foreign Service officer. He had a four-decade career in diplomacy, including serving as the U.S. Ambassador to Russia, India, Israel, Nigeria, El Salvador, among many key positions. In 1989, President George H.W. Bush appointed Thomas Pickering U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. Soon after, he played a critical role in marshalling broad international support against Iraq's invasion of Kuwait. The diplomacy that accompanied the international effort to expel Iraqi forces from Kuwait in the early 1990s is considered to be a high watermark for U.S. multilateral engagement. And that is why I was curious to learn from Ambassador Pickering about what opportunities may exist for the incoming Biden administration to reestablish U.S. global leadership and multilateral engagement. We kick off discussing the Trump administration's approach to multilateralism before having a broader conversation about the changing nature of the UN and the ways the Biden administration can productively work with allies and adversaries to advance American interests and the global good. Today's episode is produced in partnership with the Better World Campaign as part of a series examining the opportunities for strengthening multilateral engagement by the new Biden-Harris administration and the incoming 117th Congress. To learn more and access additional episodes in this series, please visit getusback.org. And now here is my conversation with Ambassador Thomas Pickering. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I'm curious to have you help us contextualize and perhaps situate the Trump administration's last four years of engaging in multilateral platforms and engaging the UN. How would you sort of characterize uh, their approach to the UN and to multilateralism? In a word, Mark, a disengagement, uh, even in cases where it might have proved to be advantageous. In part, that was, I think, ideological. In part, it uh, met the judgments and the needs of the domestic audience to which it was designed to appeal, the so-called Trump base. And in part, it reflected the advice of people who were, in one way or another, like John Bolton, 
totally committed against international institutions in large measure because they felt we had given up decision-making authority, sovereignty to those institutions, which we couldn't recover and which would be in uh, one way or another contrary to U.S. interests. Often they explained it in times that international institutions were engaging in activities to which the U.S. was committed, which in one way or another overturned or or suborned the 50 states of the United States to play uh, a role in those areas, something they alleged was guaranteed by the Constitution in the specific cases that they raised. So this is to go from the very general to the very specific. The important pieces to keep in mind were that we uh, sent people to the United Nations in New York who attempted to operate in the Security Council in ways that failed to understand the absolute necessity in the Security Council of bringing about a coherence of the membership around an action the U.S. wished to take there to reinforce U.S. interests or outlooks. The U.S., in addition, in the United Nations, withdrew from the WHO, uh, also uh, made noises about withdrawing from the World Trade Organization or resiling. It blocked World Trade Organization progress in dealing with disputes appealed to it under the WTO treaty arrangements by failing to concur in the assignment of judges to those arbitration panels. Uh, And it, in a number of ways, defunded or underfunded the United Nations, including uh, funding for the organization specifically dedicated uh, to assisting Palestinians, mainly refugees, uh, and people, children who are of schooling and healthcare and things of that sort. Um, but in other areas, it also declined or reduced United States funding for the United Nations. And so we have a significant accumulated arrears, perhaps as cogent and maybe even more significant for the United States was turning NATO into an organization, the sole purpose of which was designed to increase uh, NATO members funding against a kind of 2% target of national GDP devoted to defense. Not necessarily bad in terms of U.S. interests and not necessarily uh, bad in terms of how and in what way NATO should pull together, um, but in some ways uh, remarkably uh, ignorant of the fact that members uh, contributed uh, in their own way uh, a great deal more than just the 2%, that is technology, uh, organized uh, military relationships in areas of the world which are important, including Afghanistan, uh, and the cohesion of the alliance as a whole, which was being attacked by the United States uh, solely on the basis of financial contributions, and some clear willingness to ignore the fact that not all NATO members had domestic constituencies that were exactly the same. Uh, A more adept would have been basically Mm -hmm. 
private conversations at some length with NATO members to add up the totality of their contribution and a staged approach to which the organization could agree uh, to each side making the necessary increases uh, to revitalize the organization. Uh, there was and has been a kind of steady uh, decline in U.S. willingness uh, to trust or deal with organizations such as the International Atomic Energy Agency, which has inspected the nuclear arrangement with Iran, which consistently indicated Iran was not in violation of the arrangement uh, up to and beyond the U.S. withdrawal in May of 2018 from that organization. And so we could go on and on, unfortunately. There are any number of UN agencies that uh, in which this dynamic is is exposed. I am curious, though, to probe a bit deeper on your remarks about the Security Council. It seems, though, that this almost paralysis at the Security Council predated the Trump administration. I mean, you saw the barbs being thrown between uh, Samantha Power and her Russian counterparts far before the Trump administration took over. I mean, is there a specific missed opportunity at the Security Council that you could point to that is unique to the Trump administration as opposed to, say, broader geopolitical forces? But I, I think there were a number of cases there where we could perhaps have gone to the council. Uh, certainly, were we to get out of Afghanistan, creating a basis in the Security Council for a kind of an agreement that might actually permit that to happen or to reduce U.S. contributions, similarly, Iraq. Uh, admittedly, uh, for Russia and China, it would have taken some creative work, but neither Russia nor China in the long run were, I think, totally committed to keeping the U.S. in either Afghanistan or Iraq, and the price of getting out could well have been uh, a Security Council resolution which set forth the terms and conditions for that. That was something, at least, that could have been thought about. Uh, the same thing in Venezuela. Uh, where we are on different sides of the equation, but humanitarian relief should have been a common interest uh, and as well the potential for a UN supervised election would have, in my view, proceeded more effectively had we sat down with the Russians and the Chinese ahead of time and talked about how and in what way an election should be run or how and in what way humanitarian relief should be provided. So I think, Mark, there are a number of cases. You're right, of course, that the differences politically with Russia and China preceded uh, the Security Council and the Trump administration. I think that in some ways, uh, if you read, for example, uh, Susan Rice's book and talk about the relationship she had with her Russian opposite number, someone that I knew well and had worked with and who, with whom I shared uh, much uh, the same admiration, interestingly enough, uh, about the potential for cooperation, uh, which he, in one way or another, uh, helped arrange with Moscow. You're referring to Vitaly Churkin. Churkin, yes. Vitaly Churkin. Let me just sum it up by saying uh, the Trump administration, which was basically disagree, ignores uh, for most of the international cooperation, including that 
which would have strongly promoted U.S. interests. The value to the United States of international cooperation of alliances and coalitions has been proven time and time again uh, since the end of the Second World War as one of the major features on the landscape that is added to our own sense of our importance, if I can phrase it this way, as international leaders. Uh, but it was a smart move. Uh, it, in effect, meant that others who were opposed to where we and our alliances want to go uh, were in a minority uh, and politically quite highly isolated. And I know they felt that leverage, and I know they have sought to return. It's certainly one of the principal motivating factors of Mr. Putin's diplomacy. And one cannot say that President Xi is far behind. Mm-hmm. Um, how have you noticed uh, the UN itself adapting or changing during the Trump years? How has multilateralism responded to uh, the disengagement that you just described? I mean, I recall perhaps maybe halfway through the Trump administration, Antonio Guterres giving a press conference and, and sort of urging American engagement with the UN, saying that, you know, the UN, the liberal international order, abhors a vacuum. Uh, we, we want the U.S. to be engaged. Uh, some, to a certain extent, that fell on deaf ears. And I'm curious to learn from you how you saw the U.N. evolving and changing during this time, adapting to that relative disengagement. I think two things. I think the U.N. <clears throat> felt victimized uh, and it was treated with basically disdain and desuetude by the Trump administration. And therefore, it lacked uh, and lost uh, cohesion, commitment and action possibilities that otherwise would have been helpful. Uh, And we lost opportunities to, in fact, have the UN work with us uh, as part of the instruments of American foreign policy activity to achieve our goals. Now, those are simple, grand uh, and wide statements, but I believe, in effect, they, they are proven. The UN is not something that Uh, Like a slot machine, one can automatically put something into the Security Council and out will come an action result with everybody marching off into the sunset singing Kumbaya. But it is an important part of how we proceed. And it begins in the Security Council, uh, which is in part the recognition of a coalition of international states from various parts of the world who are prepared to work together. It has the unique advantage in all international institutions of being able to pass resolutions, which the members of the organization have all agreed in advance. It will honor and obey, even though only 15 members of the organization make them. Now, the U.S. and the other members of the Permanent Five are excused from this mandatory obligation by the veto. Nevertheless, It has still been successful in a number of areas, and I can remember how hard we worked when Iraq invaded Kuwait back in 1990 in 12 successive resolutions uh, to frame how and in what way we wanted to proceed with Iraq, including the necessity at the end of the day, through the failure of sanctions and other pressures to work, uh, to authorize the use of military force not uh, widely and often done, but something that brought together the five permanent members, perhaps in a day when things were more hopeful, more idealistic, 
uh, and more subject to international cooperation. That day may well have passed very quickly, uh, but could we have kept it alive? Perhaps. My greatest feeling in that period was that uh, we should recognize that our success in uh, dealing with the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait uh, was not something immediately replicable in the collapse of Yugoslavia and the Balkan tragedy which followed, or on a smaller scale uh, in dealing with the problems of, uh, of fragmentation and disruption in Somalia, for example. And we acted as if the Iraq example was immediately transferable, but we had no clear vision of the outcome and no clear commitment to making it happen. Uh, would that have required uh, the use of some kind of broader UN peacekeeping, peacemaking responsibilities on the, on the ground? I'm glad you mentioned your experience in marshalling international support to compel Iraqi forces out of Kuwait. It was widely regarded by scholars today as a high point for international cooperation and a high point of the Security Council and you know the UN as a platform for enforcing peace and security around the world. That's not where we are today, of course, as you just mentioned. And I'm curious to learn from you, you know, what steps the incoming Biden administration can take, if not to regain that uh, sort of lost halcyon day, but um, rather to more productively, at least, engage the UN and in multilateral affairs? What advice might you give and what steps might you uh, suggest the U.S. now take to help sort of regain its multilateral footing? Yeah, Mark, that's the important question. And whether we get back to where we were... That's why I'm asking you, Ambassador. <laughs> 1990 or 91 is a hard slog. But I think it is possible now for us to understand, uh, first and foremost, that a number of issues in the United Nations Security Council are going through. Some of those routine recommitments to peacekeeping, some of them uh, more far-reaching than that, but not as far-reaching as authority to use force. Secondly, I believe the Biden administration in their appointments, but also in the action of their appointees, needs to begin to create in the United Nations two things that I think are very valuable. A very close ongoing relationship among those who represent the P5 as much as possible, and a careful selection of measures to take in the Security Council, which have some possibility of coming to fruition, uh, and the use of both uh, the UN representative, but the Secretary of State and the President uh, to make that happen, something that James Baker and George H.W. Bush did extensively in dealing with Iraq. It was not purely that New York worked like clockwork and all one had to do was wind it every once in a while uh, from the U.S. mission. It was, in fact, uh, a, a national uh, uh, committed strategy to make that happen. That won't happen on everything, but I think we can do it on more things as they come along where we can find common interests. And for example, Russia, which is seen as perhaps one of the most fractious of our interests, we share common interests on terrorism and exchanging views and intelligence on terrorism. 
We share common interests in space. We will, I think, in the Biden administration, uh, be able to help bring the Russians along. The Chinese are mostly there on climate change if, in fact, we work with them closely and we work with the Chinese to make that happen. And those are important questions, not just at the UN, but they're important questions in our bilateral relationship with the triumvirate, if we could call it, multilateral senior powers, if I could phrase it that way. And the more we work to uh, uh, consolidate our efforts to stabilize the planet on common interests that are existential for us, and I think that's what climate change is, the more likely we are to be able to use that relationship uh, as the linchpin, the foundation stone for working together on smaller issues on which we have perhaps bigger differences. Some will have to be set aside for riper time. Uh, Some will have to be, as George Schultz often said, cultivated like a garden, which requires daily attention and hard work. And some will have to be a recognition of the fact that our diplomacy in an innovative way can pick up areas of common agreement and use constructively the quite significant leverage that still remains with us. Uh, Not all sanctions produce useful results, and we need to be aware of that, but some do. Not all military steps uh, can be taken uh, without the danger of backfire or getting into conflict, but some can. Uh, Not all problems can be addressed on the basis that there is an assumption that the other side so totally disagrees with us that we can't find the strings, uh, the threads, to put it this way, of potential harmony. And that's what diplomacy is about. And so I think a very active diplomacy there uh, to find more ways to use better something like the Security Council should be fundamental. It won't be entirely dispositive. That is the only uh, clear answer uh, in and of itself but it will contribute to American diplomacy. And of course, that's what's out there. But I often say diplomacy is turning challenges into opportunities. And the UN Security Council meeting is replete with the former. Uh, We have had less success in getting the latter, but I have at least given you some thoughts about how we might do that. It's just, it's interesting to me that you cite climate change and engaging on climate change as a straightforward uh, path to engaging on other complicated diplomatic issues. Well, I heard John Kerry on the subject not too long ago, and I don't think he would mind being quoted before he was appointed as the so-called czar. Um, But he himself, I think, understood that relationship with China in particular. And the truth is that China has perhaps more money spent on uh, production of wind energy uh, than in place in the world. It has perhaps more careful thinking about the negative effects of climate change, not only in its coastal zones, but in its agriculture and in its water scarcity, uh, as well as the necessity, and they're not there yet, of turning its energy relationships away from coal and toward renewables, perhaps through the medium of nuclear on the one hand and gas on the other. Uh, And so it has a better concept, I believe, than we have been able to settle upon. 
Uh, and while we were moving closer four years ago to some harmony, and a number of American corporations deeply invested, if I could put it this way, in the energy space or in the carbon production space, themselves realized that they had to help lead in change. Much of that has disintegrated around what has been essentially, if I could call it, the fake arguments about the fact that climate change is not here. And lastly, like you, Biden's nominee for UN Ambassador Linda Thomas Greenfield is a career foreign service officer. And, you know, that's unlike the last set of, say, five or six most recent UN ambassadors. Is there a comparative advantage that being a foreign service officer might confer as she enters her new job? I think the important point here is. I believe a professional background, and I was very lucky that I had been in many parts of the world before I went to the UN, and as a result, had some knowledge of the problems and issues that countries were contending with. I also think I approached this as a diplomatic challenge, that it was like working uh, in a parliamentary situation uh, with diplomatic tools, not that diplomacy in, in state legislatures doesn't occur or in the Congress, but it was an interesting opportunity to calculate. So one of my imperatives was to get to know everybody I could at the UN who ran uh, the, the, the policy of any country. And so in my first couple of months, I saw as many people as I could in personal calls. And those that I didn't, I had around in small groups uh, to uh, to my apartment uh, for what was essentially uh, a reception which was based on getting to know you. And I worked very hard with the regional groups. Uh, I spent time with people who in the UN system may not represent great powers, but they represent great capacity and great intellect. And part of the challenge is to find out who moves and shakes the UN on various issues uh, among the representatives. And it's not all the big people uh, from the big countries. Uh, and so delving into those things, I think, helped me a great deal in dealing with the problems. And I spoke as much as I could with both friends and enemies. And so while I didn't have instructions not to, I took advantage of those to begin to cultivate contacts with the Cubans. They were not necessarily miraculously productive, uh, but people knew that I spoke to the Cubans, and in some ways that helped me when the Cubans became members of the Security Council. Uh, and I went out of my way in the informal meetings of the Security Council every time my Cuban colleague spoke to pick out of what he had to say things that I could call a Cuban-American agreement. And there were often things that we could agree to. I'm trying to find ways to portray to him uh, and to the rest of the UN audience that even difficult uh, uh, opponents like Cuba and the United States could find things to work together on. And it helped to defang the animosity around our relationship. And it helped to defang a bit his attacks on me. Uh, and I found it uh, a technique that uh, helped me in the Security Council because rather than becoming the champion of the opposition to the United States on all points, uh, we had a little bit of a, of a private record 
of places we could agree on. Uh, it didn't change Cuba overall, but it changed the way I dealt with them diplomatically. So there are many uh, examples of those kinds of things that a professional diplomat would be more inclined to take on. I had a uh, a very interesting uh, uh, agreement in later in her life with Jean Kirkpatrick. <laughs> she told me a wonderful story, which illustrates the difference between uh, professionals and politicals. She told me that on their second day at the United Nations, she got an invitation to a reception from Korea. And so she immediately accepted and went to it. The problem was it was the wrong Korea. Uh, and the wrong Korea thought that some new relationship was being opened up. It took her a little while to shake that down, but she carefully admitted that it was something that she had, should have looked at much more carefully. And of course, that a staff that was professional, uh, which I guess she wasn't using then, would have advised her on. Well, Ambassador, thank you so much for your time. I always appreciate learning from you. Well, thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure as always to uh, to speak with you, and and I hope this is useful to you and to others who may have an opportunity to hear it and understanding that we have opportunities ahead and that the UN and international organizations are good for us and they help us in in many ways in increasing our leadership capacity and indeed our work together for common interests uh, built around things like peace and security. All right. Thank you so much to Ambassador Pickering. He's uh, someone I've spoken with and interviewed a few times over the years, including uh, for an early episode of this podcast in which Ambassador Pickering shared with me some highlights from his life and career in U.S. diplomacy. That episode is available to premium subscribers to access those archives uh, please visit globaldispatchespodcast.com and become a premium member all right we'll see you next time thanks bye